Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Each week, I'm joined by my co-host, Red, and some of the best product managers in the business. Together, we're having candid conversations that help you understand the challenges that a product manager faces, how they overcome them, and the tools and frameworks that will help you thrive in the role. So let's start the show. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman, and I'm a professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business, and I am the founding director of the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington. And we are trying to build a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. Uh, We've got quite a bit of programs that we do to build that more diverse, inclusive, and skilled community. And one of the ways we do it is we are here every single week on Clubhouse, making sure that some of the best product managers in the business are accessible to everyone. Uh, That's you in the audience here on Clubhouse, and that's you at home if you are listening to the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast. And so every week we take a different topic, and this one I think is one of Sumeya's favorites. We are going to talk about frameworks and not just frameworks for getting a job, but the frameworks that some of these best PMs in the business have been using to make decisions on the job. And so, Sumeya, you love frameworks. I want to just quickly call on you to tell us a little bit, why is this a valuable discussion? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So I want to say people who have been using frameworks for a long time will probably roll their eyes at, you know, having to discuss frameworks again and again. Frameworks are really a helpful tool in the early days of starting anything. You know, when you're starting as a practitioner or starting even a business, just to help you understand some of the questions and the points you need to address, some of the questions you need to answer, some of the points you need to think about. And that's actually why I like to use frameworks. I like to use them as a starting point to help people think about things they might not be thinking about all the time. That's one. And two, I also like frameworks because sometimes in the right frameworks, there is science that has been integrated. So for example, the movement from waterfall to agile, both of those are frameworks. But as people, you know, had to actually make that shift from waterfall to agile methodology, or the agile framework, they had to be convinced on why to do it. It was painful. So frameworks can be helpful in helping people do things a little faster and creating common language in helping people think about the things that they don't think about. But then there is also a downside to frameworks, and that usually comes up when people are using frameworks in a dogmatic way, where they're not thinking beyond what's obviously in front of them. And we can talk about that a little more. But uh, yeah, Jeff, it's a great uh, topic for us to talk about. All right, and we're going to talk about that with three fantastic product managers. We'll go in order of appearance here on Clubhouse. Patrick, tell me a little bit about your journey in product. Yeah, so my journey, Jeff, has started out at uh, more on the business side. I handled retailer relationships, then moved on to more business development, and then slowly started. I didn't. I, I don't think the first product I made, I even realized I was a product manager. I uh, made a uh, da- created a product manager dashboard at a company, and then worked for several startups. Then, around 2019, I joined HP as a 
product manager. And now I look at our app strategy on commercial and still have a couple of other applications I product manage as well. All right, Patrick, thanks for being here. Thanks for that intro. We're going to hear your favorite framework or frameworks in a moment. But first, I want to introduce Sheena. Tell us a little bit about your journey in product. Hey, hey, everybody. Yes, glad to be talking about it. And thanks for the opportunity, Jeff. My journey is uh, uh, mainly I've held mainly roles in learning communication under the umbrella of organizational change and built up products, learning and communication products that help in building out that overall operations and strategy for what holds good for the organization from a from a change perspective. Right now, I'm a leading uh, advertising technology in the area of reach and frequency and how we can enhance our features and products in uh, building out what is best suitable for the advertisers to invest with us. And uh, that's my area or scope of work. So broadly, I have moved from working from building up programs to getting to building out like individual products. And now I'm building out cluster of products or product roadmaps that will help build out an entire wing of an organization. And that's my product journey. Thank you so much. And now, Dave, I know this is going to be, uh, this will be your challenge. How do you condense it into less than 50 minutes? But tell us about your exciting journey and product. That's funny, Jeff. Thanks for having me. First of all, I really appreciate it. I'll just say I got my start in technology, making color copies at Kinko's, and I worked my way up through a lot of technology companies, Microsoft, Apple. Jeff, you can stop me anytime you want me to add any details. And then uh, I worked my way through that and ran product for the flights product at, at Expedia for a long time, did hotels product, a bunch of different products there. I was head of growth at Blue Nile, so I ran product marketing. And then most recently, I was uh, SVP of product at Compass. So I've done product for a long time, came from more of a technical background, which gives me a different point of view. The best way to think about where my product skills come from is I've done every job in technology that nobody wanted to do with a smile on my face. All right. I'm glad you're bringing that smile on your face here today, although we can only see your puppy's smile in the clubhouse icon. Now, I just want to hear from each of you. Uh, Let's just go round robin so you can hear less of me and more of the product managers here on stage. Each of you, including Sumeya. What's been your favorite framework that you've applied on the job? And you can choose favorite either as most commonly used or even just like the most helpful. Like maybe you didn't use it very often, but it had a profound impact on the way you approached a a very important problem. So the floor is yours to decide how to describe it, but make sure you describe it in enough depth. People can understand it if they're aspiring product managers or if they've already likely used that framework. So try to speak to both of those audiences, your favorite framework and why it's your favorite. Yeah, I'll start us off. I'm going to start with actually a principle because frameworks are in many ways collections of principles or high-level how-tos based on a single principle or set of principles. But really my favorite framework from where I start and one that I believe is a non-negotiable in the world of product management is first principles. So, you know, it's a building block of any knowledge, any learning, and product management relies on that continuous learning and continuous exploration and investigation and discovery. And so the most important principle, I think, on a daily basis is this one, the first principles one. And then from there, at different times in my life, I've had to use different methodologies and different frameworks. 
I think now I am less about the framework than I am about the mindset. And so when I'm thinking about frameworks I use on a daily basis or that my teams use, they're usually around some key mindsets, uh, mindsets around building quality, mindsets around creating exponential growth. And so, you know, lean, agile continues to be important, especially with customer-facing products, user-centered design is another framework that's really important. And user-centered design is something that applies not just to designers, but also product managers, where we're constantly thinking about what is the solution or set of features or things that we can build that will generate a positive experience and a valuable experience for the customer? And then that shows up, for example, in the way we write stories as PMs. You know, they're based on what is the user need and the acceptance criteria is really based on what the user needs rather than what some other party needs. I'll stop here. Who else has a framework they want to share? I like to make things as simple as possible. And Samaya had a really lots of interesting ideas, which I love. I think my favorite framework to use and really this decision-making process is regarding around just getting things moving. So a lot of times I've seen teams go off the rails, my own teams included, when they just can't pick an order of things to do. And philosophically, I think, you know, if something got on my backlog, it probably should get done. doesn't mean that it's the most important or the least important, but if it's there, it's probably worth doing. And so a lot of times what people get lost in is how do I decide that list? How do I decide what I'm going to get done for the next amount of time? How do I decide what's going to get done for these customers or those customers, whether they're internal or external? But the point being, you have to be able to manage that backlog in a way that makes it easy. And so what you find a lot of times is teams get lost in that conversation. And what I like to do is separate things into facts and opinions. Facts are things we know we need to do. Those are things that we can all agree on. You know, we need to get this security uh, hole fixed. We need to get this feature done. We've committed to it. We need to improve the quality. These are things that everybody in the room, you can say, does anybody disagree with these things that we need to get done? And if you can align those and you say, let's get started on the facts first. We don't have to debate those anymore. And then we can talk about the opinions and debate those while the facts are going. But if you can parse out the facts from the opinions... It makes it really easy to make decisions and move forward with a plan when you're stuck. And a lot of times, you know, I think we've all been in those meetings or those planning sessions or any of those discussions where everybody's kind of rolling their eyes like we're going to go around and around in a circle. And I always ask, like, is our competitor having this debate right now? Right, wherever I am, is there any competitor debating this right now? The answer is usually probably not. And so we shouldn't be doing that either. So getting clarity of thought in terms of what you're going to focus on and when as a priority, is one of the things a product manager can really do to get a project and a team moving quickly and then communicating the heck out of that. David, I want to just add to that, that that exercise usually can be done by PMs and there is a name to it. It's called assumption mapping and it allows people to let the facts rise to the top. It's a two by two exercise too that can be done with teams, just in case anyone is curious to read more about it. Sheena. Did you have something you wanted to say? Yes, I just wanted to add, you know, plus one to both what Sumaya and David had to say. And just to take what Sumaya was talking about from a user-centric perspective, I think the framework that has helped me a lot is working backwards. Looking from the customer lens, what is needed? What are the benefits we are 
offering? What is the problem we're trying to solve? Why should we be solving it? And how does it benefit the customer? Having that customer-centric lens allows us to at least build out better products, building out those use cases, etc. And then helping us prioritize what we should be focusing on develops that efficiency, which builds that quality product. And this mechanism or this framework has helped or proved successful each and every time we have looked to build products and has always worked for me and for my team. So I just wanted to talk to that as a framework. And Sheena, also to clarify, just for the purpose of other people looking this up, if they want to, you're talking about the working backwards framework that Amazon popularized, right? Yes, yes, of course. It's the problem you're trying to solve. Who are our targeted users? How does it benefit the customer, right? How are we looking to solve for that? And what does that product ultimately look like, like a prototype, right? If we look from that lens, then we're focused in in what we're building. And we're not moving away from that super focused lens of saying, hey, this is the problem we're trying to solve. So please, please stay focused on that. Sometimes conversations are always broad and, you know, go into different directions. So working backwards from that single lens of saying, hey, this is what we're trying to solve. This is our customer. These are our use cases. And this is how the solution looks like, is the working backwards plan that I'm referring to. Yes. Thanks, Sheena. There is a book on that topic as well, if anyone is curious. It's a great book. I'm a huge fan. It's actually now one of uh, my favorite. It came out last year, so it's recent. It's called Working Backwards. So, Patrick, how about you? Yeah, thank you. You know, I agree with what everyone, everything, pretty much everyone said. I, I, I think uh, most, I think they all said it better than I could. But uh, I tend to, I don't know whether I do start with work, well, working backwards is in there. I'm not sure. I would, I usually, when I start mapping it out, right, in like the very first session, looking at the North Star, the North Star framework as well. I put that in there. I don't use it past maybe the first week or unless we get off track, but mainly to make sure, right, because in a big matrix organization, you basically have to have executive support. And most of my projects cost a lot. I have a lot of the budget <laughs> and one way I accomplish that, right? Because I have multiple customers. I think of the executives as somewhat as customers too, is to make sure I'm aligned with their priorities. Right. And I think that North star looking at that helps and then fitting working the working backwards in there. Right. And making sure like, and then where, where David said to right, making sure that facts are there, right? Like opinions, guts. Yeah. They might be there. And maybe they do belong in the backlog, but making sure the backlog stays clean and you don't overfill it. Because I've seen that happen, right? Where the backlog gets to 100, then the developers are start getting lost, right? They're, they're working the order, but they almost get choice paralysis. Not really, because choice paralysis means you can't choose something. They know what to work on. I guess they just get run down by the length of the list. But mainly looking at it from starting, you know, making sure you're including in there. Yes, you have to solve a customer pain point should be better than what they currently have, preferably not change their behavior. But at the same time, right, you you have to, especially in a large organization, align with one of the company's overall goals. So one thing I find curious is that most of what we've talked about has been execution related frameworks. Are there strategy frameworks 
that you guys recommend or you like? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you one that I like. I call it funnel mapping. And basically, it's, it's not really about execution. But if you go back and say the ideal state for any product manager or any team is to be in full control of their product. What I mean by that is you know specifically why you're doing something and what it's going to impact, what the downstream impacts of those are. So, for example, let's take something everybody's done and booked a flight. In booking a flight, you know, initially a product team would say, well, my product, and as a product manager, it begins at when they land on the website, right? You come, you go to Google, or you go to a meta search like Kayak, and you look up a flight, and you land on Expedia, and the next thing you do is you're going to start looking for flights. We, we engage when you land at Expedia, and then you go and you start looking for flight, and then we disengage when you check out and go to customer service. I think the, the framework from a strategic perspective that you want to have is, or that I like to see, is a funnel end-to-end. Product team and everybody on the team, if you've done right, should be agnostic to where you invest. And you say, I understand the begin the funnel begins on Google. It begins where I'm, where ad spend is going. It begins on you know the meta search. It begins on the landing page. However, I'm doing that, and it doesn't end flight. It ends when the customer service is engaged and everything the flight the trip is complete. But not really. It ends on the next iteration. When you reach back out and re-engage your consumers. And so you got to think about your funnel that way. And if you can map that and say, I have clear design steps along each way, and I know both the input metrics, which are the metrics I can tune every day for each step, and the output metrics, which are longer to move, and I'll give you examples of those in a minute, for each step along the way and what the key metrics are. And I can map saying projects go to step A, step B, step C, et cetera. And I know that if I make step C better, all the subsequent steps are going to get better in a certain way, and I can see it come out the other end. It gives you a strategic framework to make decisions. When I talk about input and output metrics, that's specifically what I talk about. It's another framework, but it goes with the funnel mapping. An input metric is something like the you know, number of visitors per day or something that's going to change on a daily basis, funnel progression from a search results page to a details page. Any of those are really daily metrics that you can move and you can get things going. But your output metrics don't move as quickly. Total flights sold or total attaches that we had or any number of things that, you know, conversion rate, those don't move on a day-to-day basis in any significant design, uh, measurable way that's significant. But you have to be able to say, I can predict because these projects are going to input metrics, these input metrics will tell me the output metrics are going to get better, which overall hits my business goal might be total revenue for the company. But if you can map your journey for your user, and I, I think, Patrick, you mentioned that, or Sheena, you mentioned that as well, which is, if I know the map of the journey working backwards from my customer and I can say it actually starts here on Google or wherever it happens to start for your customers, then as a product team, I am agnostic to where I invest. I'm going to go invest in the most opportune spot for my op- my business result that I'm looking for. So I really, that's one of the frameworks I use in strategic planning. Thanks, David, for that. I think it's really important to be able to have both frameworks for strategy and then execution. But the one you brought up can also be extrapolated to be used on shorter term kind of planning. And I like that because, you know, good planning is not planning you do once a year. You're always thinking about your strategy and how you're moving towards the outcome. That's a really good point. When you're planning, I like to do planning every three months. Yeah. And just refresh the plan and then do an annual plan, sort of what's our strategy without any projects aligned to it, just say what we're going to try to get done. But the way that if you have a funnel map of exactly what's happening in your product, 
you can both do your strategic planning and your tactical planning to your point because you see how everything works together. And some things strategically are not going to be done in a 90-day in a period. It might take a year to build out. But you know you're making progress on them. And so you have some short-term bets and you have some long-term bets that are part of strategic initiatives. But you can see it. And the key thing that I always want people to understand is control. You want control over your full funnel. right? And I think that's one of the things that people get confused with what they control as a product team. Your job as a product manager in your planning and your frameworks and decision-making is to invest in maybe the best business and outcome no matter what. It doesn't matter what team you're investing on. Great. Thank you, David. Anything else, Patrick or Sheena, you want to add? Yeah. I mean, you brought up great points, um, David, but I would like to add on in that sense, saying what David mentioned, uh, what Patrick mentioned was that having that North Star, right? That vision of like saying, we want to add to that to 40% of the revenue, or this is the goal, or this is the North Star of the company, or this is the North Star of that product that we're trying to build. Having that vision clearly defined helps you, you know, strategize on what we should be focusing on. So establishing a good North Star, getting that single vital metric in place helps drive strategy on how on what products we should be focusing on or what features will help lead to that final quality product. So that's a strategy, that's a framework that is essential, which works both from a strategy perspective and from actually building or or effectively implementing a strategy. So just to add to that. Thanks, Sheena. So I want to move slightly to, or I want to move to a different aspect of frameworks that we didn't touch upon and is really important for PMs, and that's people. So I think if you talk to a lot of PMs and you ask them what's the most challenging thing for them right now, you probably will get a lot of answers about someone who's difficult to deal with or, you know, a stakeholder who's difficult to manage or a team member who's you know, is challenging. And so what are some of the frameworks that you guys have used or have mentored people to use around people management and working with different styles of people and basically the influence without authority thing that PMs have to do 90% of the time? This is a question, I guess, not only for PMs, but I guess it's a broad organizational question, especially when we talk about influencing without authority. The strategy is there is no one size that fits all. It's a question of how you work with different teams. And forgive me when I, I mean, it can be a little generalizing as of now, but we have to look from the mindset of what team you're working from. Now, when we're working with technical teams to get our technical design, you have to be as specific and detailed as possible, right? To influence, to work with clear timelines, with clear specifications, with clear understanding of if we are inputting X, the result is Y, right? Or this is the kind of result we want. We change and 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 it's more a question of being very tactical, very, let's just say, having a lot more touch points with those teams to influence them to work. Whereas when we meet from a business perspective or a voice of customer kind of or those those teams, we're top talking holistically and saying, how is it that you're trying to help us or give us that enough material to build? our product, right? So we're influencing them to kind of give us that benefit. And those touch points are not as often 
or and we don't have to be that detailed or specific. But we're giving more high level conversations and high level talks of influencing, which is different from how we deal with the tech. So, right. Sheena, uh, forgive me, just to make sure we're able to address this uh, question as I intended it. What is that framework? Is there a framework that can help people or help PMs understand how to address different people, different styles of people, how to build that, basically, that influence without authority muscle? There's not necessarily a framework I can talk to, but this is just more okay. from a personal experience. So that's why I was trying to like allude to what have worked for me. So the frameworks, I mean, or, or rather I would just say that you have certain structural templates that would use. You'd use technical design documents, you would use business requirement documents, and that allows you to structure your conversations for specific teams that you would be dealing with. But that's exactly okay. the methodologies that I would use or those elements of helping to influence these teams and not necessarily that a framework that I allude to. Patrick, I saw you unmuted there. Go ahead. Yeah, it was an accident, but no, it's fine. I did, I did have some comments, right? Coming, you know, I, I was in uh, sales for a long time. And, you know, one example from when I wasn't even a product manager, a, a senior buyer at Best Buy, I brought a proposal to him to do something. It was not very common. And he said, how do you do this? And I said, well, I just shoot an email to this person at your company manages this division. And then they shoot over here and then we can do it this way in your system. And he goes, how do you know that? And I go, well, my job is to know your job better than you. And that's one, one way, right? There's lots of different ways, but one way is to know them. Now, I think Sheena pointed out a good point, right? I don't know more than the architects I work with and I never will. I'm okay with that. I do tell them I'm happy when I get the same result. Um, but I, I won't know as much as them. And some things to keep in mind, right? There's not really a framework. Well, there's one I found, right? But everyone has forces in their lives, right? And not to use a really old framework, but Porter's five forces, right? And I would not take them at the five that they are, right? Because they're not really applicable to an individual. But people, keep in mind, people have a hierarchy of needs or people have that. And they got a lot more challenging to influence, at least I found new people when we went virtual, and we were not co-located, but being able to figure out what makes them tick and align with them, right? Like some people like to be seen as the connector, right? I work with a guy who loves to be seen as that. So even if I know who it is, who has it, I go, hey, do you mind setting up a meeting or, or can we have a talk on this? And he loves doing it, right? That's what he loves doing. And then he's introduced me and it's paid off a hundredfold meetings and he's been very supportive, right? Everyone has those needs. You know, at a certain point though, some people I've struggled to, there's one individual, like you mentioned, I've struggled to influence. Everyone's different. And sometimes you rely on others that can maybe influence them or worse when it comes down to it, right? If four or five people agree on the team, escalate on them at, as a last resort, right? I do not like to do that. And I always tell people that. One good book, a classic book is uh, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. I found that very, very insightful, great book to read if you've never read it, even if you never want to be a product manager. It's just a great book on how to, uh, how to, the question you had, how to influence people. There's more I could do, but I'll let David talk. I see you came off mute. Storytelling is mm -hmm. another great one to align people. Go on, David. Uh, thanks, Patrick. I was just going to build on top of your comments, and I think both of you have said some really wise things. One of the best PMs I ever had on my team that I worked with, he used to say to me all the time, that's a wonderful idea that you have. And I think that is a really important point. Part of what you do in influencing people is bringing them into the conversation. So is it a framework or not? But it's definitely an approach of humility. 
I'm not going to come in and tell you what to do. I'm going to give you some ideas. And I approach it generally around, hey, I have this idea. What do you think? And then giving people credit in those ideas. But I think it's important when, you, when you're talking to people not to come up with a solution. And so the framework is really framing the problem versus the solution. And you see this especially working with user experience teams. You know, a user experience team, especially for new PMs, your first instinct is to say, I drew this picture, it's got boxes and buttons, just make it look good, which is not what a user experience team is there to do at all. When you go to a user experience team, you want to say, I have this customer problem that I've identified. I have a hypothesis around it. How would we solve it? How would you solve it? But you're not giving them the answer. You're saying, here's the problem I've identified. The same with engineering teams. They want to be part of the conversation. And so different people have different approaches. And some people want to be part of the conversation quietly. And some people want to be part of the conversation actively. And so when you're in a meeting with a bunch of people and you see somebody sitting quietly, one of the things I do a lot is to say, you know, say it's Patrick. I say, hey, Patrick, what are your thoughts on this? Bring them into the conversation. But you really want to get that ability to bring people with you rather than dictate to them. That's one of the mistakes product managers make often. Even if you know the answer, a lot of times I already know what I want to do. But I want to get people bought in. So I, I, I frame it as, what do you think of this? Or here's an idea I had. Or here's something I want to do. When I'm wrong, I admit it. I take it and I want to learn from it. But you want to really think in that way of framing problems versus solutions in the way you talk to people. Really good ideas. Thank you guys in in China for that. Let's talk about when frameworks go wrong. <laughs> We've all seen scenarios and ways where frameworks are not necessarily helpful. Would love to hear maybe some stories or you know advice on what to do when that happens and what are some of those situations. How do you know that this framework is not working? When they become too rigid, right? If you have to. If anyone ever has to say, well, we need to do this because it's in the framework, right? The framework's starting to become too rigid or it locks you into a decision. I've seen some people, you know, keep in mind, ad, part of being agile, right? You have documentation, you have these steps, but at the same time, it's okay to deviate, right? Don't lock yourself into one particular framework or feel free to either change or combine different ones. Um, and why I think of a story, I'll pass on to David. Yeah, I can tell a story. You know, when I when I started a compass, it was a startup coming out and becoming a full grown scaled company. And one of the things that we had to build was the rhythm of the business. And for those that don't know what that is, it's just basically the ceremonies over the year of how you do things. Do you do a monthly review? Do you do a quarterly review? Do how do your flash reports work? Whatever it happens to be, whatever happens to work for your company. And so we had done a pretty big reorg and last summer. And we implemented a rhythm of the business, which was new, and it was really meant to simplify people's lives. And it's always a balance when you go through these things and say, look, let's get it out there without making it perfect because we want to get started versus, hey, we might cause too much pain for the team. So we built in our retro function into the way we did the rhythm of the business. Every time we did it, we talked to the team and say, how did it go? What did we learn? Can we make it better? So when we first did it, we had three things we were building out. We had a flash report, we had a monthly review, and we had a quarterly report. And this was broken down by what we called workflow teams. These are just teams that were focused on an end-to-end customer problem. So we launched it in December of 2021, and people were spending months and months working towards this. And we got it out. And then our, our feedback form came up for the company at the same time. And we got completely lambasted. People did not like it. 
They thought it was terrible. People just, it was onerous. And when you look at it and you say, geez, you know, we overcorrected. And so we were lucky we had this retro system in place. But we said, look, the flash reports, you know, people were putting too much information in them. They were 10 pages long, which nobody wants a flash report 10 pages long. A, nobody wants to write it. And B, nobody wants to read it. And then we were doing a monthly review. It's like, hey, every month, let's see how your progress is going towards your quarterly plan. Well, that ended up being too much. There just wasn't enough change happening on the team. So we canceled that. And we said, we're just going to do a quarterly update. And then for specific areas where we're extra concerned, we'll do a monthly check-in. But we had to correct. And we were burning the team out without realizing it. And so when you when you see something like that, you know, the framework is sound. And I use the framework from my past that I know works. It doesn't work here. And so one of the things is you go from company to company and you learn these lessons. You're going to take them with you, which is great, which is exactly what you should do. But they don't always apply the same way. You have to really humble yourself and say, is it working here? Is it not? Why not? Why would it adjust? You got to have that feedback mechanism built in or you're never going to learn. So that was a framework gone wrong as the root of the business. Wow, David, I think that's probably a lesson a lot of people who have been doing product management for a while have learned personally. I had a similar aspiration in a new job to use the framework that I saw work somewhere else, but I did not take into account culture and the fact that culture is, uh, even though I fit well within that culture, still it's not about me. It's about everyone else who has been there for a while doing things in a specific way. And I failed. I failed with my change. So I had to go back to the drawing board and make a lot of changes to make it fit into the actual culture of the organization. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's the hardest thing to do because you know it works. But yeah. how it works there, like we did a lot of test and learn in Expedia. I went to Blue Nile, I was like, let's do test and learn. And we did, but we didn't have as much traffic. So you had to test and learn in a different way. Or when I was at Expedia, I wanted, if you guys have been down in my talks that I've done, you know, I wanted to do a very beautiful flight experience. So I took the Apple methodology and applied it and just made this beautiful experience. Totally failed. Right. So you have to learn these lessons and you don't know which ones are going to work or not. I think the most important thing in these lessons, though, is to speak up, do what you think is right and do the best you can. But then make sure you're looking at whatever, whether it's a product, a process, a mechanism, doesn't matter. You got to make sure it's working along the way. Absolutely. Feedback loop. Very important. That's another framework (laughs) thing is whatever you build, whether it's a product or a process, make sure there is a feedback loop and a quick one so you can adjust. All right. Are there any questions or points from the audience? I want to open it up in the last 15 minutes. If anyone wants to join us on stage and share perspective or ask any questions of our panelists, you're more than welcome to. And while we wait for that, I do have one other question for you. So you all have, you know, used different frameworks for different types of organizations, different products, different needs. Beyond the the situations where frameworks didn't work, how do you pick a framework? So if I am a PM or a starting PM today, and in front of me are three people like us or four, and we have given them 10 different frameworks, how would you go about choosing the right framework to start with? Well, how to choose, it's a question of um, what works best for your organization and what works best from your comfort level. There are certain things that, you know, when, when I was talking about the working backwards policy, working backwards plan, that 
kind of helps you structure your thoughts and it's a good framework to take into focus when you're building out your broad product. But if you have to be agile about it and you need to get a solution right up front, then you need to be scrappy, right? And so you have to get like a minimum viable product in place. Then you will change your framework. You will change how you think about it. And you, you need to work fast. You need to work fast. You need to you need to ensure that you have something to to deliver or give to the customer as an immediate need. So that's when you will you will choose. It, it choose. It's based on what is you know impending or what is what is an immediate need of the organization based on what your comfort level is in terms of like are you comfortable in choosing a broader strategy that suits the product needs as of now or are you interested in like getting out a product or a scrappy solution immediately out there right now so i mean that's how i would structure my thoughts on how a person can choose a strategy that works Thanks, Sheena. Okay, if there are no additional thoughts on, on this, I want to ask one last question. And this might be a little controversial, but if there is one framework you'd love would go away, what would that be? <laughs> I could live without racy diagrams. <laughs> I don't love racy. I love it. Yeah, I feel like racy is just trying to move, work around a core issue rather than just discussing it. All right, Racy. How about you, Patrick? Well, I agree. Uh, I agree with. I was trying to think of my second least favorite. You know, I still think. You know, they, I've used Racy once or twice. I won't say it was my choice. The product we chose it during as a as a team, and some of the team liked it because because of the reach portion of it that was being overlooked, and a couple others. But yeah, it's probably the least used one that I that I don't really care for, and. I guess because I don't understand, I, I don't, I haven't utilized it, so I wouldn't miss it. Probably the squad, the squad one is uh, as well, like the Spotify, I think, but squads. I haven't used that. I've used the, you know, we're cross functional, we're autonomous, but I don't like the focus on the outcomes of the squads. I like to focus on the problems. So I guess that portion of it. Okay. Fina, do you have any you don't like? Not necessarily. I mean, nothing comes to mind as of now. Okay. I'm going to say one that's super controversial, I think, especially for people in large companies. And that's safe. <laughs> I know it's a methodology rather than a framework, but, you know, PI planning, a lot of the stuff that come up, come into safe is extremely, <laughs> how should I say it? It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of work and energy from the organization, and it literally has very uh, little positive return. So that's one I would love to see go away sooner rather than later. <laughs> Alrighty, so I think I see one actually one question coming up. Shira, I'm bringing you up. Hi, Shira. Welcome. Hello. Do you have any, do you have any questions or thoughts you want to share? I do. I just wanted to say how much I've enjoyed the discussion and say hi to Jeff. I am a inclusive product management fellow graduate. Mm -hmm. Welcome. Um, thank you. And uh, I just recently started a role at a larger organization. So my question is really, oh, and by the way, your, your comment about safe, I was listening to Marty Kagan recently talk about it and he was 
talking about some of the the perils of people using safe too widely as well. So what you're saying may be controversial, but it's not without merit. Okay, so my question is around culture. So I'm in an organization that comes from a very command and control type of environment. So what I find is that even when we are going through the ceremonies, when I'm trying to get input from the developers or from the team in terms of prioritizing, in terms of you know, what is going to be included in the sprint or what work is going to be done and how to negotiate with other teams or other people who come to try to pile on more work. Because they were used to an environment where saying no is punished and they're used to just being told what to do, it's very difficult to get them to, number one, speak up about how they feel if they, no one ever has any, you know, barriers or obstacles to what they're doing, and they just try to take on everything that's given to them. So I was just wondering what advice you might give in that circumstance. First, I have a clarifying question. So, Shira, within the organization, there is, of course, a specific culture, but then within the team, there is also another culture, and they can be exactly the same. Is there a difference? Do you see a slight difference between the two? Is the team that's more command and control, or is it the entire company? I think it's it's actually it's actually the um, not the whole company but the organization within the company yeah so the like the whole division is pretty mm. much yeah interesting mm-hmm. uh, so the reason I ask about that is because some of my thoughts that I'm going to share right now are based on this very specific research from Google around you know successful team or highly performing teams and it's the project name that was done to do this to determine these outcomes it was an empirical one it's called project aristotle but the foundational layer the first thing you start with with teams that need to create more psychological safety is basically to build that, is to show the team that they can take risks, even in asking questions or in saying no, but then there is a soft landing. And the soft landing can be how you frame those situations. It's all about the learning, for example. It's about continuously improving. And so as a first step, I would think as a PM, my sphere of influence is all about my product team or this pod or whatever you want to call it, this product team that you have influence over and you can make a lot of the decisions with. And so first thing is create that psychological safety. There are four other things also that matter around accountability and impact and meaning, but foundationally, and this is actually the hardest thing, is the psychological safety thing. You might find that you've done everything you could possibly do. You have talked to the people that your team reports to, like let's say the engineering managers and the design managers and others who might be part of the team and you got them on board and they are supportive. But then there is one layer up that will continue influencing everyone towards this place where there is no psychological safety. People are not willing to speak up. There is a possibility, but they've also seen it succeed. I've seen product teams within organizations that don't encourage that. And yet within them, they have this protective layer where they are able to maintain some of that. Any thoughts from anyone else? I think you said a lot of what I was going to say, right? I would... I was going to say, you know, when you, when you, uh, just to reiterate it, right. 
you know, model the behavior yourself, right? When people see and you have humility and you get up in front of the team and say, you know, hey, we're not going to focus on this. Here's why. Here's why it's not going to be in the backlog. X, Y, Z. I think that that people see that then others may follow, right? There's no prescription to change a uh, culture, especially if it's across a whole division, but you can make an impact on it. Yeah, I'd add a couple things. One, it's the way you approach it. And I think both of Samaya and Patrick said are very relevant, but the way you approach it. So when in a command and control structure, I think it's a lot about trust. Like they're trying to build trust. And once they trust you, you get a lot more work done or your team trusts you. So a lot of times you might say, I have a sample idea or do you mind if I operate or an opinion? And it's a way to kind of diffuse any tension there. I think the other thing is when you're working on backlogs and people are always pushing their backlogs, I like to practice extreme transparency. Here's everything we got asked. I might even pull everybody in a room to do a joint planning session. So here's everything everybody's asking for. Get it all on a whiteboard. Get it all on stickies. doesn't matter. And just show everybody this is an infinite backlog. I cannot do all this work in this amount of time. So let's group-wise discuss what needs to happen. And then that way you get a very easy view for everybody. And they can say, oh, I see you're getting asked by 10 people. But if you're not transparent with that, then everybody thinks you're just ignoring my request. And so that's one of the ways I try to do it. Okay, thank you. Really good tip. Thank you so much for asking your question here. And thank you to the panelists who were able to address it. We're about out of time. So I want to make sure that we get to concluding thoughts. And hopefully we're over the technology issues and you can actually hear me and I'm not just talking to myself at the moment. But we'll go in reverse order of what I see on Clubhouse. So Sheena, if you could go first, any concluding thoughts or takeaways that you would like to leave the audience with? Yeah, I guess I'd like to say that product management is a good role to be in and applying frameworks while it has its pros, it does come with a few cons. I think adapting to what your situation is, what your needs are, is key to success and enjoy yourself while you're building your products. Thank you, Sheena. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your insights. Thank you. And Sumeya, any concluding thoughts you'd like to leave the audience with? Yeah, I think week after week, we talk about many different frameworks. I really like them in organizing people's thoughts and in helping, especially new practitioners, latch on to certain concepts. And having said that, though, they can't be the be all end all. And, you know, I think what you were also able to pick up from some of our conversation is some of the nuance that's around culture where, you know, you can look at a framework that has been empirically proven to have worked again and again, but it will fail in certain situations. And so don't let the framework be the, you know, arbiter of success. The framework is not it. The arbiter of success is all the feedback loops you create and the feedback you hear from both the organization or the customer. And then do what works in that situation. So do what works, do what's right. Thank you. David. Thanks for having me today. I really appreciated the time and and people listening, and I learned a lot. So thank you. Um, You know, I think Sheena and Samaya had really good pieces of advice. I'll just give a different point of view. Not different, but I'll add on a different, little something different, which is, it doesn't matter. Product management, what level you are, it doesn't matter anything about that. You're a leader. You have to remember you're a leader. People are looking to you for direction. And so I think one of the things you have to do is provide that clarity at every step along the way. And the framework you use to do that really is up to you. I think Sheena said it really well. You know, some, you just figure out what works at the time. There's no perfect answer. There's no, there's no book on how to do a product management really well because it changes on a per company per situation basis. But if you remember you're a leader, 
And people are looking to you to provide clarity because they need it. And they might need that clarity in different ways. If you're focused on that, you're going to be successful. All right. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for sharing your expertise. Patrick, any concluding thoughts? Yeah, Jeff, thanks for, you know, thanks for having, having me and thanks for putting this on. I learned a lot too, as David, David said, I learned from the, quite a bit from everyone else. So thank you. You know, and sorry, apologies if there's a screaming kid in the background. <laughs> I thought I should leave a few minutes early, but uh, I didn't want to. I got caught. <laughs> Anyways, a few uh, closing comments. You know, the same everyone else said, right? I, I uh, similar, I, I love frameworks. I think they're very useful at the same time, right? I think they're the question on the rigidity, right? Don't be afraid to mend them or adjust them as your product or your project need. And each one may need a little bit different framework to be successful. So I would definitely always have a framework, but I, I'm, I, I, if, but realize when it's A, not working, you need to change, or B, you need to adjust it. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Patrick, David, and Sheena for being here. I appreciate your sharing your insights. Thank you, everybody, to listening both here in Clubhouse where we're live and listening there on the podcast. You can download How to Succeed in Product Management on any major podcasting platform. And again, we're here every week because it's important to us to see a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. And part of that is bringing together some of the greatest minds in product management making their knowledge and expertise accessible to everyone around the world. And so we're grateful that we have so many product managers willing to give back through the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington. And if you're a product manager here in the United States and you want to help us empower professionals from historically marginalized communities land their first PM role, we have the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator with that goal in mind. And we need volunteers. We need a ton of volunteers because we want them to learn from the best. We want them to forge connections who can help them get uh, through the interview process and get the job that, that we've seen them deserve. It's a competitive program, 3.4% acceptance rate in the latest cohort, super competitive program. And, and these are driven, hungry, future product managers. And again, we need volunteers, as many volunteers as we can get to support them in their journey. So if you're a product manager, check out the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator and click a link to volunteer. We'd love to have you. And everybody else, we'll see you here on Clubhouse or on every major podcasting app next week on how to succeed in product management.